0: This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. As we move into December, a portion of Everything that you guys will give sacrificially above and beyond uh, your regular giving to the Greater Impact special offering, which you heard a little bit about last Sunday. The links are uh, are there and available. You'll hear a lot about this next week, um, all of the initiatives that they support there. But one of them uh, we support through that special offering is the Lottie Moon uh, Christmas offering. Some of you who have a Southern Baptist background will be familiar with that. Those of you who don't will not. Uh, but there's a lot of great work that comes uh, through the funds that go to support that as uh, there are through the other ministries and organizations that we help support with that offering. So I encourage you to, to look at what you'll, uh, you'll be receiving in inboxes and at your house uh, this week. Uh, and prayerfully consider what God would have you give, because I'll guarantee you, if you're here this morning, God would have you give something as both an act of faith, obedience, or, or simple curiosity about whether or not God is who He says He is and can be trusted toward His kingdom work um, in our community, in our nation, and around uh, the world. This morning, we continue our series, Is Christmas Unbelievable? Looking at a series of questions around Uh, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ uh, that impact this season of the year. This morning, we will be in the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Um, Many decades ago now, at really the height of American achievement in our NASA program, uh, as American astronauts stepped foot on the moon for the very first time, Richard Nixon was so overcome with pride and excitement that he he shouted out, surely this is the greatest day since creation. Billy Graham, who just happened to be with him at that time, reminded him about Christmas and Easter. And Nixon felt a little sheepish. It's not insignificant That Graham reminded him of those two days. This morning, we're going to look at an Easter passage to get a Christmas message. Because without the truth of Easter, of the resurrection, Christmas and the birth of Jesus would not have the significance that it does. If Christ were not born, if he had not died on the cross, in your place and mine, bearing all of the weight, the penalty, and the guilt of human sin collectively, and were he not raised, resurrected to new life three days later, we would not be here this morning. All three of those things matter. This morning we come to address uh, a question which I assume that most of us in here would answer with an affirmative, as we would last week. And I told you last week that My desire prayerfully, and as I I listen to the Lord's intent about the message this morning, is not that, that our minds might be changed, though some of you, if you're honest, may wrestle with the question we're going to address this morning, but rather that those of us who can affirm that we already believe this, we already say yes to this, might be encouraged And that affirmation might be deepened. Those roots go deeper and more wide so that we are encouraged again and strengthened again in our faith. The question we look at this morning is simply this. Are the gospels reliable? Are the gospels reliable? I submit to you that this is a central question for us to think about this time of year because the gospels are the only accounts we have of Jesus' birth. So around the world, some 30% of all human beings on the planet are celebrating the Advent season right now, based on the accounts we find in the gospel of the Jesus, of the birth of Jesus. Are the gospels reliable? Well, let's look at, as we seek to allow God to answer that question, to strengthen us, to challenge us, to push us, maybe to stir our affections for Him. Let's look at Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified on the third day, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered His words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But... They did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. What had happened? Let me pray for us as we allow God's Spirit to unpack His Word and apply it to our lives today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, move and stir in this room today. Holy Spirit, have your way here. Speak to us, interrupt our hearts and minds, stir our affections for God. Drive deep our faith in you, our trust in you, that so affects our behavior and our decisions Bring healing where there are wounds. Soften hearts that are hard this morning. God, restore the joy of your salvation in the lives of those who seem to have lost it. And do, Heavenly Father, what only you can do by the power of your Spirit to the glory of your Son during this time, I pray in the powerful and sufficient name of Jesus. Amen. Um, before we jump in here, I have to say it, it's good to see so many of you in here. I knew after last night there'd be a great number looking for hope. Or it would be a terrible morning, right, as uh, George's Law stunned uh, many in the nation who follow college football and did not expect that. So um, I did, as funny as it seems, and, and maybe right or wrong, pray for you guys last night Baylor won, so I just sing for joy personally, but I did did pray for you. What I would like to do is to simply point out aspects of this passage that I believe speak to the radical reliability of the Gospels. They're here, these characteristics that I'll point out to you, but they're found throughout the entire Gospel narratives, and I want it not to be missed on us, and I'll tell you really why, toward the end of the message. The first thing I see here is the ordinary, the ordinary nature of those God chooses. The ordinary nature of those God chooses points to the reliability of the Gospels as the standard and the foundation for Christian faith. Because if you and I, again, if we're going to make something up, if we're going to launch a movement with a sort of fabricated beginning and a pseudo-hero that over time we put together and sort of, uh, sort of craft out and sketch out, we would not choose the kind of people that we see throughout the Gospels being used by God as the first witnesses and the first followers of Jesus the Messiah. Look at, let's look at verses 5 through 8 again. Verses 5 through 8 again. So, um, verse 1 tells us that very early in the morning, very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, uh, Jesus' followers had observed the Sabbath the day before, Saturday, following His death on Friday. And very, very early in the morning, on Sunday, the first day of the week, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. The women is this statement that characterizes those named and beyond who were a group of disciples with Jesus through His teaching ministry, His earthly ministry, through His crucifixion on the cross, and now have been huddled together with the male disciples. And they're going to anoint the body. They're going to take care of Jesus' body. Well, they get there. They get there to the tomb, and, and we find this issue of the, the round stone, which was common in that day, typically carved out to cover what was often a rectangular um, entrance to uh, a burial tomb carved out into the side of uh, a mountain or at least a, a cliff facing there um, in first-century Palestine. They get there, and that's rolled back. And while they're there, suddenly some men appear. appear. And the women bow down, they realize instantly— They realize instantly that these aren't just ordinary men. Look at verse 5. In their fright, in their fright, now this is often the human response when we see divine ambassadors, angels appear to human beings as messengers of God. There's a fearful response immediately from human beings. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, he's been risen. Remember now now pay attention here. Remember how he told you while he was with you in Galilee that the Son of Men must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day raised again. Well, if you track Jesus' movements and when he said this, this was just days prior. Right? This is just days prior. And these earliest of heroes of the faith, both men and women could not understand this. They were so ordinary and so ordinarily influenced by their religious tradition and, and culture at that time that had no understanding and no mental concept of one individual being resurrected before the entire resurrection of the dead, right? Jewish people absolutely were looking forward to the full and final resurrection of the dead, those in God, but they had no concept that one would come first right? And so they're there, and even though Jesus himself in their presence had told them, along with the apostles, days before, consistently unpacking several times, this is why I'm heading to Jerusalem. This is what it's all been about. My atoning, sacrificial, victorious, substitutionary death on the cross, I was, in a sense, born to die. And they don't get it. They just flat don't get it. You would not pick these people and write them down decades later as the primary people associated with Jesus and his events. There is an ordinary nature to those God chooses. They're not the ones that we would choose. Nobody that Jesus chooses here would be in a who's who's list from today. They just wouldn't make it. And this is good news for most of us because for most of us we're just ordinary people too. Can we just say amen and embrace that? If there's anything that social media has done, it has presented us presented us with this false narrative that all of us should be extraordinary in at least one way if not several ways. And we look at everyone and we think, why can't we be like they are? And we know in our still moments, they're not that way either. It's their fake internet presence. And there are no doubt, there are no doubt some men and women along the way who are extraordinarily gifted in this way or that way. But most of us are just ordinary men and women, ordinary human beings who go about our days trying to do the best we can, following Jesus, trusting Him. And the Gospels, unlike any other human philosophy or religion, present us with a God who just chooses ordinary people. It's not only this, though. It is also the detailed nature of the text. The detailed nature of the text. We see it here, and we see it throughout all four Gospels. Not only is Luke careful to tell us the exact day of the week that the women go out, but the time of the week, very early in the morning, when you put the different accounts together, it appears that the women left as soon as they could see. As soon as the sun was up enough that they could move around, they left that gathering of Jesus' distraught and demoralized disciples and headed for the tomb. But you have other specific details from the from the nature of the stone covering the tomb to the fact that it's already open to the women getting there, going in, their emotions are detailed, their fear. And then look at, look at verse 10. Luke actually names several of the women. Other gospel writers do as well for a little bit fuller list. But he says it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, And Mary, the mother of James. And we know about these women. We know that Mary Magdalene and Joanna had been healed by Jesus. And they had become followers of his on those days. We know that Joanna and some other women helped fund Jesus' ministry and that of the male apostles. Part of what's remarkable about Joanna is that her husband was the manager of Herod's household. And it's absolutely not just possible, but probable that the money that she was using to fund Jesus' ministry as she followed him was coming from her husband's coffins being paid to him by Herod. I love that. I love that God will use the willing and unwilling participation of all human beings to bring about his kingdom purposes. You can want to participate. You cannot want to participate. But the sovereign God in his glory and his will will move as he pleases. We've got Mary, the mother of James, and Joseph, not Joseph, but Joseph, J O S E S, if you look at the gospel accounts carefully. Part of what Luke is doing here, a few decades, not too long, but a few decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, is he's saying, I'm going to name specific people who were there on that day at this event who had this experience, and I'm going to write it out. Some of you know Luke was a Gentile, a physician, a historian. He was very, very careful and very driven by dates and facts and times. And he names these individuals. It's very detailed. It's checkable, especially in that day. As the text goes out, people begin to read this. They're like, oh, I know this woman. I know her son. I had her grandson in preschool. He was terrible. Maybe she hadn't taught him about Jesus or whatever. He's listing it in detail. If you remember the beginning, for those of you that remember the beginning of Luke's gospel, he begins the gospel by naming the king of Judea in that time, by naming the high priest in that time. If you uh, recall Luke chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just read you a couple of verses. Um, very early, when he begins the account of the birth of Jesus, Luke does it this way. He says, in those days, Caesar Augustus, historical individual, issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Do you hear the detailed nature that we find in the Gospels? This is not just stuff made up. It's reliable historical account. Third, there's the difficult nature of the claims. The extremely difficult nature of the claims made by Jesus throughout his ministry and by the gospel writers itself speaks to the reliability of the gospels. Well, why? Because, church, if you you and I are sitting around and we're getting ready to start a movement, a human-made movement, and we're like, let's say we want to overthrow Rome, we're back in their day, and we start something like this. We want to make it where it's true that not everybody who reads it, Jew or Gentile, is going to begin to reject it in the very beginning. Would we not want to write something out that people would get excited about? They'd say, man, that makes sense, let's go let's do it. Young men would grab their swords. They'd head out. This is not what we find in the gospels. It's very difficult. Look back at verse 11 of chapter 24. Not only did the women miss the fact that Jesus was going to be resurrected himself, because let's be honest, that's not that hard to struggle with. Let's do this. How many of you have ever, ever been to a funeral? That's most of us in here. How many of you have ever been to a funeral to a person who was buried and came back later? I really wanted to look because we've got counseling resources um, that we can refer people to. This is not normal. This is difficult. And when the ladies bring back the word, verse 11 says, if you remember, that they, this is the male apostles, did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. I'll say a little bit more about that from a different direction in just a minute. But this whole thing seems like nonsense. And so much of Jesus' teaching did. We talked a couple of weeks ago about Jesus saying, hey, if you're not with me, you are against me. If you're not gathering with me, you're scattering. Our super uber sensitive and offendable society today Uh, would say that's so incredibly arrogant. Who wants to follow someone that says, if you're not with me, then you're against me. No, can I just not be with you? Can I be with myself and with other people? No, you're either with me or you're against me. Jesus said, those who don't hate their mother and father can't be my disciples. Now you've got to do some interpretive work to understand what was going on there, but that's a difficult statement to make. Jesus said, if anyone would find their life, you've got to give it up you've got to release control of your life, of your decisions and your plans and your dreams and submit them to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Where you and I say, this is my thoughts, these are my feelings, this is what I want to do, but I will lay them at the altar of the God who has saved me. And my only answer to him always is yes. Those are hard statements. Jesus said, that he was the, the way, the definite article is there. He's not a way, a truth, and a life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And in case there was any confusion, he went ahead and clarified it. No one comes to the Father but by me. That is a difficult, bold thing for a human being to say, right? Nobody, nobody thought his half-brother James was God, Nobody confused Peter with God. Nobody even confused the Apostle Paul, probably, certainly by impact, the second greatest life ever lived behind Jesus Christ. Nobody confused Paul with God, but people who walked with Jesus and ate with Jesus and slept with Jesus and watched him interact with people and learn from him, in time believed him to be God in flesh. There's a difficult nature to the claims in the gospel. The apostle Paul is very open and honest about this. Let me read to you a passage that I intentionally don't want up on the screens. I just want you to hear. Because throughout human history and in scripture, not human history, throughout church history and in scripture, preaching is ultimately an auditory thing. It is not a visual thing. It's auditory. Now I want you to hear Paul's thoughts about this and his message to the church in Corinth. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For in the message of the cross, or the message of the cross, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Don't miss this. He's saying, a servant king crucified and executed in a humiliating and embarrassing way that thousands of others before him had been and thousands others after him were, that act was actually the power of God. Verse 20, he says, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. And then Paul says this, a stumbling block to the Jews. They, have, they just cannot get over the fact that God would send the Savior as a servant to die. And then he would be resurrected before everybody else. It's a stumbling block to them. And foolishness to Gentiles, the whole thing seems absurd to people without the Jewish background that some of Paul's listeners in Corinth had. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The gospels contain in themselves an undeniably difficult Degree of claims. They're hard to believe. If you're making it up, you would have made up easier stuff. You wouldn't have Jesus looked like such a lunatic throughout his ministry. So there's the ordinary nature of those God chooses. There is the detailed nature of the text. There's the difficult nature of the claims that we find in the gospels. And then finally, I'll just say this. There's the counter-cultural nature of women as the first witnesses of the resurrection. The countercultural nature of women as the first witnesses of the resurrection. This is something that any scholar and every scholar who reads this runs right into and immediately has to wrestle with because they understand the world in which this was taking place. Let me give you just a sampling. Uh, New Testament scholar and biblical backgrounds authority, uh, Tom Wright, N.T. Wright says, even if we, he's talking particularly about Mark as the earliest written gospel right here, but he says, even if we suppose Mark made up most of his material, Wright's not affirming that, I want to let you know. He's saying, suppose someone was to, was to uh, suppose that. It would not do to have him or anyone else at this stage making up a would-be legend about an empty tomb and having women be the ones who find it. Women were simply not acceptable legal witnesses. Wright is saying no one would have believed them. It would have been laughable to have a woman as a witness. Phil Yancey says, according to all four gospels, when were the first witnesses of the resurrection? I don't even know what I'm supposed to type there. Is it wrong on the screen? I'll just roll right on. The first witnesses of the resurrection. A fact that no conspirator, women, women were the first witnesses of the resurrection. I figured it out on the fly. A fact that no conspirator in the first century would have invented. Jewish courts did not even accept the testimony of female witnesses. A deliberate cover-up would have put Peter or John or better yet Nicodemus in the spotlight. Not built the case around reports from women. John Ortberg says that in all four Gospels, the task of being witnesses who proclaim the resurrection is given to women. This is remarkable, because in the ancient world, a woman's testimony was generally disregarded. And then Celsus, who was a second century Greek philosopher and and fast, hard opponent of the church and early Christianity, said, but who saw this resurrection? A hysterical female, as you say, and perhaps some one other of those who were deluded by this same sorcery. So from the very beginning, outsiders were saying, of course, this was ridiculous. I mean, and seriously, it's grounded on the testimony of women. Give me a break. We all know they have smaller brains and limited mental faculties. Right? Right? We do know that our brains tend to be uh, uh, in accordance with our, our, our bodies, and so the, the average female brain size is about 7 to 10% smaller than the male, but when taken account for the body, they're the same. And studies for decades have shown there's really no difference in intelligence based on gender except that women tend to have slightly higher emotional intelligence, which I think most of us would understand. Slightly higher emotional intelligence. But in Jesus' day and throughout much, not only of ancient history, but of modern history until the last couple of hundred years, there was sincerely a deeply rooted belief that women's brains were so small that this affected them in two specific ways. One, it affected their intelligence so that they were more easily deceived, duped, and confused. So you, so you didn't want to trust them. Easy to confuse the gals, Right? And also, it affected them emotionally, so that they were prone to hysteria and instability. And this was the world Jesus lived and moved in. This was the world of the early disciples. But not only, and unless you look at Luke and think, well, maybe it's kind of an accident. Look at Matthew 28. It is the risen Lord himself who appears and directs them to go carry the message of his resurrection back to his male disciples. All of our belief goes back to the witness of these female followers of Jesus. No one in the first century or second or third would have ever made that up. The only reason this is the same witness in all four gospels is because it is true. And the prominent women there who were prominent followers of Jesus in the early church are not just listed in some kind of group, they're listed by name. There's an ordinary nature of those God chooses. There's a detailed nature of the text. There's a difficult nature of the claims that we find throughout the Gospels. The resurrection itself, if we only had that, is such a difficult claim. But it is the center of the Christian faith. It is the acting human history that changed all of history. It is the work and the power of God and the Gospel. Understood and revealed counterculturally at first to these women as witnesses. So, what difference does it really make in the end? As the band begins to make their way back up here and get ready to lead us in a time of reflection and response through music, I submit to you that it makes all the difference in the world that your faith is tethered. To a logical, intellectual understanding of the Gospels. God has made us not just emotion, but cognition and volition, will and intellect and feeling. And when those come together, there's tremendous power for living and faith in Jesus Christ. Um, in a March 7th article in The Atlantic, Tim Keller, who you'll often hear me quote, he's had a huge influence on me and really on evangelical Christianity in America and American around the world, uh, Tim Keller wrote an article entitled "Growing My Faith in the Face of Death." Keller is wrestling with stage four pancreatic cancer now, and it is inc- it is an incredible article. I commend it to you as highly as I can commend an article. Growing my faith in the face of death, or you can just Google Tim Keller, The Atlantic, and it won't be the only article he's written for them, but it will come up. And what Keller does in there is share with great honesty how hard it has been for him to take his own advice when death came and tapped at his door. Because none of us really think it's coming to tap at our door. We just don't. And Keller says, I had to go back deep into what I believe." I had to go back deeply to the God of the Gospels, the God we find revealed in Psalms and in Jesus Christ and root again by the aid of the Holy Spirit, my faith in Jesus Christ, in the Word of God. It's trustworthiness. It's truthfulness. Allow God again to break in and to bring my mind and my heart together in such a way that my faith was strengthened. And he talks about having bad days right now and having good days. But he says, the degree to which my good days are good are unlike anything I've ever known before. My prayer, my desire is that you and I would be able to know pieces of that kind of confidence and faith and affection in our heart for God, for who he is, and our experience with him day in and day out before death taps on our door. What you and I believe matters. And the basis for what we believe matters. May you be challenged with that this morning. Let's stand and pray. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.